Welcome to the Masters of Data podcast, the podcast where we talk about how data affects our businesses and our lives, and we talk to the people on the front lines of the data revolution. And I'm your host, Ben Newton. I love creative business names, and our guest today started a company with one of the best names I have ever seen. Terry Young, the founder and CEO of Sparks & Honey, has created a very different way of approaching cultural trends. Sparks & Honey's active learning system, Q, brings top-grade data science and machine learning to the art of trend spotting and understanding how our culture is changing. I sat down with Terry at his Madison Avenue headquarters in New York City. So without any further ado, let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Masters of Data podcast, and I am excited to be with uh, Terry Young, who's the CEO of Sparks & Honey. Appreciate you taking the time, Terry. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. We're sitting in your office here in New York City, so we are. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally say, just walk in. I totally start getting the uh, sense of who you guys are uh, as a company, and I, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about that. And I definitely, I think I brought a little bit of the heat wave with me. It was yeah. hot. In the <laughs> <laughs> it has been hot here in the last week or so. <laughs> I've uh, forgotten what humidity is like living on the West Coast. <laughs> but I love Terry to start off and just get to know people and about your background. So. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Like, how'd you get to where you were, and, and what kind of led you to the point, you know, being here running Sparks and Honey? Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, I'll give you the the short version. <laughs> I grew up in Kentucky, so Southern boy. Made my way to Texas. Went to UT Austin. Yeah. Uh, studied advertising there, and you know, I got involved in what was happening with the shifts around internet and the latest internet technologies when it was just first starting to take shape. Yeah. And then I took that and went into the advertising business, working for a couple of advertising holding companies, mostly always in the strategy data CRM world with a digital overlay. Did that for a while and took a little stint at McKinsey, management consulting yeah. in greater China, came back to the U.S. and After a bit of time, continuing in the holding companies, I just decided to take a break. I left, at that time I was with Omnicom, which is one of the ad holding companies, and I took a summer and wrote the business plan for Sparks and Honey. And that was about six and a half years ago. And so you just walked in, so here we are now, six and a half years uh, later. And you know, when we first wrote that business plan, it was a pretty, pioneering idea, you know? Where'd the name come from? Sparks and Honey. I love the name, by the way. Everyone asked that. I was, I was sold when I saw the name. I'm like, I'm excited <laughs> about talking name. about it. So the idea of the name is the spark is the little spark that you see in culture, something that's just yeah. starting to ignite. So back to our conversation that we'll have around signals. And Honey, that stickiness between organization and that spark. And so we wanted to try to, you know, to look at how you identify something that is first emerging and then how you turn that into an opportunity for an organization. Oh, that's pretty cool. I'm from the South, too. So is it... Where are you from? I'm uh, from North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. I, when, I, when, I, when I saw Honey, I immediately went to Honey and Biscuits, but that's yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> that, too. You know? Where are you from in Kentucky? In- A small town in Kentucky called Litchfield. It's uh, Western Kentucky. Okay. So grew up there and um, made my way out. And my granddad's from Kentucky. So oh, really? Got a little bit of history. I've there. been reading the the book. Uh, have you read Hillbilly Elegy? Yes, I read part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's definitely it's you know it's all about the migration out of Kentucky. Yeah. yeah. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, I I find that really interesting. Well, and when you started Sparks and Honey, 
what was kind of the problem you're trying to solve? So as part of that business plan, what gap did you see? Yeah, so a couple of things. So number one, I saw flaws in the advertising model in general. You know, like that the way that advertising had been constructed, the business model was really a media-driven model where you would build out these big campaigns. It was still fairly TV-focused, though digital was still becoming a much, much larger part of what people were doing from campaigns. But it really didn't use a lot of the advantages that you see in other industries. And when you think about where the world was going at that time, you were starting to have access to data that we hadn't had access to before. We were starting to have technologies start to emerge that allowed us to be much quicker in our decision making. And I looked at a lot of the advertising models and saw them kind of slow, kind of dinosaurs in in a certain way. And I said, you know, what happens when we start getting more data on consumers? We have technology to make sense of that data even quicker. And we can work less like maybe a traditional advertising company and more like the newsroom at CNN, where it's fast moving based on what you see with the signals. And so the very initial premise was trying to break that mold of kind of a slow moving agency and bring that that fast way of understanding culture into the agency as opposed to being campaign driven, be real time in nature. So kind of an older model, because a big part of what you guys do is try to observe culture, right? And understand what's going on. So how would a, an older agency model have done that? How would they observe culture? Well, older, older model, I mean, in older model, I mean, there's still a lot of yeah, yeah, <laughs> agencies yeah, yeah. That, that work exactly this way. I mean, you're going to do some traditional research to try to understand consumers. You're going to get a bunch of creatives and planners together, and you come up with sometimes data-driven ideas, sometimes gut ideas. Yeah. Those ideas become campaigns that are out in the marketplace. And juxtapose that to a system and a set of tools that allow you to understand consumer behavior in real time, observing those shifts that are happening in culture, and based on those shifts, quantifying them, and based on that quantification, determining what those next campaigns can be. That's where we started. So you ask about where we started. We started in that model. I would say probably two-thirds of our business today is not focused on advertising and marketing. It's focused on innovation, kind of where the world is going and what does that mean to big, large Fortune 100 companies in what's the next business model, You know, what's the next ingredient I should think about for my product? How do I plan out my roadmap that's five, seven, ten years out? Yeah. Well, you know, you know, one interesting thing when I was planning to talk to you, you know, you and I talked about the book Sensemaking before and and I was planning to talk to you and Christian a little later, is that uh, one thing he says is that a lot of these companies doing things with data without cultural context leads to bias. So mm-hmm. do you feel like that's part of what you guys can help some of these companies with is to understand how their, how their products and their brands perform like outside of the, you know, their kind of traditional areas when they're going international or they're going to groups that they're maybe not as familiar with? Or yeah. How do you think about that? I mean, it's a fantastic question. So, I mean, I think bias has become a very important topic in particular after the election, right? I mean, right, right. Every, every big brand in the U.S. in particular, and probably even on a global basis when you think about Brexit, you think about Trump, yeah, yeah. people started to ask the question of why are there groups or micro-tribes or you know, these cohorts that we don't understand, and are we making all of our decisions without understanding those, those groups? I think there's two things to answer your question. One is when you think about 
culture. Culture is representative of all people, and it's good, it's bad, it's underbelly, and it's most important things. And so you can't judge culture. Culture is what culture is, right? And our job at Sparks and Honey is to build systems to understand culture in all of those different iterations. When you build a people-driven business, and even sometimes when you build technology-driven businesses, you can build biases into those systems. And so one of the things that we've tried very hard to do is we built a structure that looks at cultural tensions. And tension spaces are very important because if I say, you know, I just use the example of people want to be constantly connected to their technology. I mean, you have your your phone in front of you and you're talking about how it can do all these different things and it's 24-7. The other side of that tension, and one one simple way of thinking about cultural tensions, is digital detox. People needing to break away from technology, being overwhelmed by technology. Both of those things exist in parallel. There are people that lean a little bit more on the left, a little bit more on the right. There are people that oscillate between those two spaces. When you are thinking about the world and how to operate in the world, it's very important to understand the binaries and understand what those tensions are, number one. Number two, if you are just doing traditional research, you're saying, I'm gonna conduct a focus group, and you go out and you use only that focus group and you haven't understood the tension, you may be only conducting research on one side of the tension. Yeah. So there are things that we knew early on in constructing Sparks and Honey that you know we have a ton of bias because of the way we're built. We have a geographic bias because we're only in a few big east and west coast cities. We have an educational bias because you know we don't represent everyone that culture represents. Right. To fill in some of those gaps, we've used technology. We've built, one example is building persona bots. And these bots look more like the people that we would never have at Sparks and Honey. So we want to know what someone from, we were just talking about Kentucky, someone that's on the assembly line working in Appalachia thinks, or someone who's a coal miner, or someone who has very different views than the employee base that we may have at Sparks and Honey. And without having that, you can run the risk of having bias in the way you think about the world. This the word persona about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, being in marketing, I talk personas all the time. So, <laughs> so I guess even transitioning to technology, you guys have got this system that you use called Q, right? Yes. And so is the persona bots part of that whole system? It or? is. So, so the system basically consists of four layers. One layer is what we call our elements of culture. And this is a tagging, uh, it's a taxonomy that allows us to make sense of the chaos of culture, right? right? So you see something happen in culture, well, you need to connect that signal to something, some language, some way of behaving, and that's what the elements of culture do. So we break culture down into microtrends, into macrotrends, into megatrends. Microtrends are those things that are happening around us every second. Macro trends are things that are going to impact organizations one to three years, and mega trends are much further out, right? Okay. That's one piece of it. The second piece is we use a lot of different data inputs and a lot of different platforms in order to analyze culture. We have our own platform, which is signal-oriented, but we overlay data from Bloomberg, from CB Insights, from Quid, and 20-plus other tools. Both of those are kind of signal-based and platform-based, there's also the human side of it. And this is where the social sciences part of understanding what's happening in the world becomes very important. We're basically triangulating data, science, and social science together. And so we have what we call our human network, which is one side are 40 plus CEOs 
that and well-known individuals in their particular industry that allow us to validate and understand what may be happening in beauty, artificial intelligence, memes, so forth and so on. And then we have scouts on a global basis that are basically curious individuals that are monitoring what's happening on a geographic level or an industry level. And all of that is getting consolidated back into one centralized platform. That platform for us is Q. And then what you're gonna see in about 40 minutes is something we do every day, which is our daily culture briefing. Right. And the daily culture briefing, we bring everyone in the entire company together and we host about 200 guests a week. And we come together and it's a crowdsourced hour of pattern identification. We always are at the horizontal, meaning that we may jump from something coming off of Reddit to a patent, to a meme, to some new academic research, so forth and so on. And what our teams are trained in, they're trained in automatically understanding where those small signals cluster against our elements of culture. And then they are looking for patterns that you may typically not see. And when you do that every single day, you basically begin to build muscle memory. And that muscle memory allows you to see things that you may miss otherwise. So it's almost like you can train machines to look for patterns. You can also train people to look for patterns. And the beauty of Sparks and Honey is we bring those two things together. That actually is an interesting point because being you know, data field myself, I think one of the big struggles with data analytics in general is where the where the human and the machine meet. Yeah. It sounds like part of what what you guys have been doing is really about trying to, to solve that. So just having all that data that you guys put in, if you didn't have humans involved with that, it wouldn't be nearly as useful, right? That's the idea at Sparks and Honey is that we have all of this data, we have all all kinds of amazing tools but it's the social sciences that we lay over that which makes it so compelling because we're using those tools and those data inputs to narrow the world of culture into what we think of as like this this cone of possibilities. Yeah. These are territories or areas that we could invest in or that could be the next big product or that could help us understand the future of autonomous driving, whatever that is. But you still have to place your bet somewhere. You still, there's still a human element to it. And that human nuance, I think, is critical. And when you don't have that, I think sometimes you have the blinders on. And that's where bias comes in. Yeah. And that's where you, you may not really completely understand both sides of attention. Well, and you know, it, it actually an interesting question came to mind. You know, I mean, as the CEO of the company, you know, a lot of what we, we talk about is these new kind of skill sets emerging, right? And so now we, we have a very much a data-driven economy, right? I mean, one of the things I loved about meeting you guys is how you're, you're, you're kind of on a different part of the spectrum than where I, I usually are thinking about the cultural data, but how do you train your team and look for people that are actually, I mean, what kind of skills are you looking for in that, those group of people that are doing that, you know, looking for those trends and kind of spotting those patterns? I mean, what kind of skills does that involve? Yeah, great question. So there's a couple of things that I think are fundamental for someone working at Sparks and Honey. One, we look for individuals that showcase a high level of curiosity yeah. and curiosity in all aspects of their life, right? Like, yeah, like yeah, those yeah. are individuals who, when you talk to them, they are doing really interesting things. They have side gigs, they're just on their own, they're exploring kind of what's next, what's in the future, so forth and so on. That's one piece. The second is people tend to come from 
two or three different areas. Almost everyone here comes from some kind of strategic background, right. meaning that they are either coming from consulting firms, they're coming from startups, or they're coming from some kind of planning or futurism type of discipline. So they come from those areas. And then the other piece is having a deep understanding of the social sciences. So anthropological research, ethnographic research, understanding psychology and sociology, those disciplines really round out the idea of purely just being data science based. We have plenty of people who are also coming from the data science, machine learning yeah. disciplines, but we always want to mesh together the social science part of it. Would you find, I mean, do you have a hard time finding people that have both of those? Because I guess that's, that's part of the argument going on in the industry right now is that I remember I was a physics and math undergrad and there was a lot of time for humanities yeah. you know, classes and I regret that now. You know, Looking back at it, I wish I had, I had spent more time on that. I mean, do you... F is it hard to find people that yeah, have that definitely. mesh? Definitely. And we don't find people that have it all day one. Yeah. I guess what I would say is that we hire people that come from those purest data science backgrounds. We get people who are coming from strategy, futurism, entrepreneurial yeah. backgrounds. And then we have a pretty robust training program. I mean, most people that come through here, I would say it takes probably six or eight months to really master, I don't know if master is the right word, it maybe takes longer than that to master, the tools, the methodologies, the frameworks, because we have created all new frameworks, all new methodologies, new research practices. We have our own tools that we've created. And so someone coming in, uh, just because you've used a tool in the past doesn't mean that you would, it takes a while to, to ramp up on that. So I think part of what we do is bring those two things together in the way we train people who come yeah. into Sparks and Honey. And I think you'll see in the briefing today, and this is kind of an amazing thing about the organization, is that the briefing you'll see, we do it every single day for one hour. You'll see every single person in the entire agency is in that room, and there'll be like eight to 12 people that'll be the cast members and two briefers up front. But anyone in Sparks and Honey can participate in that briefing at equal levels. And it's really, we democratize the way you think about interactions between yeah. levels. We could have a CMO of a company, a CEO, someone from the UN, someone from the Department of Defense, and our intern, and they all sit beside each other and they engage in the conversation that's where cool. they unpack the trends. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, after watching a few of those, I think, I haven't really seen something exactly what like what you guys are doing here, and I think it's really interesting. So, I mean, saying that, now you've been running Q for, what, like four years now, it's about? Or? Well, Sparse and Honey has been around for about six and a half years, and I would say for the first two and a half years, we did a lot of the analysis manual yeah. and, you know, kind of low-tech, using a lot of outside technologies. Yeah. And, you know, three or four years ago, we started building out our own tools. We launched Q officially probably two years ago. Okay, two years ago. And we were using it unofficially with, you know, before that. And now we're building out derivative products coming off of Q. So Q is used by our consultants on behalf of mostly Fortune 100 companies. So you'll have a, a large company will use Q and then we'll help guide them on, you know, their path for the future. We now have begun to launch other SaaS products. So we have one called Living Segmentation, which maps culture back to your segments. And then we're building out a version of Q that will be a SaaS product as well. That's cool. And now that having had a few years of running Q, I mean, what are some of the things that stand out to you that you kind of learned over the last couple of years? Because I've, I've looked at a couple of your reports and I mean, mm -hmm. they're, they're fascinating. I mean, you guys have really done some interesting work. I mean, what stands out to you over these last few years? 
Well, there's probably a couple of things. One, that over the four or five years that we have been running the briefings and running Sparks and Honey, basically what we did is every single day monitored culture. We tagged culture. Yeah. We tried to make sense of something that is extremely complex yeah, yeah. and very invariable and chaotic. And that became some incredible training input into Q. I mean, because now all of a sudden I can see the sharing economy or esports or any of these things that have emerged over the last five or six years yeah. and see how they shifted over time. The language that people talked about them when they very first started to emerge and how that changed. And so that was one of the, the best things was understanding how the methods by which we had created could help fuel a tool like Q. Second thing is, is to just see some of what Q is able to extract. So I tell the story, which is probably four and a half years ago, we were observing people on YouTube, watching other people play video games, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when we see anything like that, you'll see in the briefing today, we'll say, oh, that, that's an interesting behavior. Let's go do some research on that behavior. Let's get a, an anthropologist to go monitor that. And we watch it over time. And then when you're watching it every single day, it was probably like four or five months later, you know, Twitch launched and you started to see everything oh. happening with esports. And then fast forward a year and a half, we had some executives in the telecommunications industry in and we we're telling them about Twitch and eSports and people still didn't know what it was. <laughs> and you fast forward to today, and I mean, you know, it's a whole industry. That's kind of the magic of what Q is. It identifies things when they're very first emerging. And they're the kind of things that without quantification, they would be very easy to dismiss because they probably reside in a small micro tribe. They're probably incredibly fringe, but what you see is them building momentum, gaining velocity, and then you can track that over time and understand how language changes, how consumer behavior changes, and then you can determine how you translate that into an opportunity. What, what do you feel when you go to businesses with this that they, I mean, your, your example there is a, is a great example because, I mean, you know, being able to kind of anticipate something like Twitch coming along and, you know, now kids are spending an enormous amount of time watching video games online. How do you feel like businesses respond to that? Like, do they, what's the challenges you have in, in kind of convincing businesses that this data actually, that the trends you're spotting are real? It's a great question. I mean, I think it's the same challenge that businesses have in understanding that things are changing and could disrupt their organization. It's the same, I mean, from Kodak to Instagram to Blockbuster to Netflix, it's a very similar process in that what we're doing is we're quantifying culture, identifying things that may be small today, but that can be a tidal wave to an industry tomorrow, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some clients are incredibly receptive. Some are very incredibly dismissive. And you have everything in between. The thing that I would say is that we live in a world that is the rate of change is accelerating. And I think most CEOs and CMOs feel under pressure because the rate of change is happening around them. They've seen whole industries change. Look at what's happened with CPG industry. You know, I saw a great slide over the weekend looking at the bank of Amazon and looking how Amazon is completely disrupting, you know, the financial industry. These <laughs> things are real, right? They're out there. They're, they're One creating. More thing. An yeah, exactly. And so I think a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs are looking for guidance that allows them to take to have a different methodology for understanding the way change happens and to get out in front of it.
And so people are much more receptive today yeah. than they were when I started the company six and a half years ago. Oh, that's, no, that's, that's interesting. Well, what do you think has changed? That there's a recognition that the technology can actually help? Or that they're feeling more overwhelmed with the, with the changes going on? Or? I think it's both of those. I think there's probably a whole series of things. I think that the number of examples of industries being disrupted has probably increased. I think almost all of those are driven by technological change. Yeah. And I think that people now, you know, C-suite executives are asking themselves the question of, I don't want to be on the wrong side of disruption. Yeah. I want to be on the right side of disruption. Therefore, how can I leverage technology? How can I leverage new data sources in order to rethink about my industry? And I think they're more seeking it out as opposed to putting up the barriers. Oh, that, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of a conversation I was actually having with somebody just last week is that when you think about trends, if you hop on a trend when it, the trend's already big, then you, you basically just, you know, you don't get it. People are going to, you know, you're basically coming in and you're pretending to be part of a trend that you really don't. Whereas if you can get on a trend early and be, you know, have a voice in that early, then you actually have the ability to even perhaps even guide that trend, but definitely be part and actually be, uh, you know, have a real perspective that people respect. Maybe it's the word I'm looking yeah. for is that the people that are part of that will respect you. Whereas if you come to the end, you know, like in our industry, it's things like technologies that come around like, you know, Kubernetes or Docker, you know, these technologies that peer up and, you know, everybody's jumping on that train now. They just seem like, I don't know, posers. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it seems like what, what that's part of what you guys can do is if you can identify those trends early and then these business leaders can actually make bets on a few of those and they actually have the opportunity to be part of those trends and nurture them instead of being surprised by them and then kind of, mm -hmm. you know. So, yes, but it varies a little bit based on the company and the industry. So yeah. there are some companies that are very mass market oriented that are trying to drive huge volume at scale. You know, a QSR company like a McDonald's, right? Yeah, yeah. So catching a trend at the top of the wave might be really interesting for someone who needs to drive volume at scale. Mm -hmm. Then you take a, a startup who's trying to disrupt they want to find something very early. But sometimes when you find something very early, it doesn't have scale, right? right, right. And so you have to balance those, those two things. We were working with a beauty client and we were looking at the time frame to get product to market. And there is a beauty startup called Milk. And they, they launched a cannabis mascara. And they basically infused cannabis into the mascara, sold it at Sephora, and they took the cycle to launch down to like four months. Yeah. The typical cycle of, of identifying uh, an opportunity in the marketplace and getting it on shelf is 18 to 24 months for the really big houses that are producing new products. And you know that's a good example of it may not scale to the level of a traditional you know, flagship product, but this idea of being able to identify something very early, but then not only being able to identify it, being able to have the infrastructure operationally to do something with it. Not every company can. That's why startups tend to be able to be much more nimble on turning those trends into something really fast because you take a very large corporation, they may sometimes struggle in reducing the kind of manufacturing cycles. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Because if you're if you're moving too slowly, then the trend may already have you know peaked yeah. and then passed. And that's what happens. You see, yeah. some of these big companies they grab the trend by the time they can get it on shelf. It's kind of it's old, not interesting. So sometimes what they do is pick up something that is really going to be around for a long time that has more scale, and that works better for them, right? Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I guess that's part of the one question on that to, to dig in a little bit is that if you're identifying all these trends, are you recommending that your your clients find a couple to to focus on, or do they tend to say, okay, here's a large number, I'm going to experiment and kind of get a feel for all of them, and then you know, because because that that could seem with with a system like this, you could actually get overwhelmed with the trends too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, the system is designed to narrow to like a set of trends that are quantified and manageable and relevant to a particular organization. Okay. So we take the world of culture, narrow that down to the impact on an industry, and then to an individual brand within the oh, industry. Oh, got it. Okay. Right? So filtered by the brand. Okay. So it. here is what it means to you, insurance company or automotive company or telecommunications company, and here's what it would mean to your audiences, and here's how you put a pro forma around that and begin to understand that. The other question that you ask, it would vary by clients. So some clients want to experiment. So they're like, let's try different things and put things out into market and see you know, what sticks. Other clients want to take something that already looks like it has an upward trajectory and has already been somewhat proven. And so it really depends on the client to the way they execute and market. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I guess to kind of to wrap up here, I mean, uh, I mean, what you guys are doing is super cool. Because I mean, like I said, you sold me on the name. I'm like Sparks <laughs> and Honey. I got to talk to these guys. I love but it. But then, uh, but then also when I looked at your your system, you know, what you guys have built with with Q, I think it's it's pretty amazing. And you usually don't hear about, at least where you know where I sit, you usually don't hear about that kind of analytics and you no know, data work outside of like pure technology companies. And I think what what you guys are doing is really cool. So what's next? Where do you guys go from here? What's your next big hill to climb? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, there's a couple of things we're doing. One is we are, we were born in in advertising, right? So uh, Sparks & Honey rolls up to a holding company called Omnicom. So it's one of the big, big holding companies. But we, we really are less focused on impacting marketing communications and more focused on impacting the enterprise. So, you know, we would see ourselves as a different methodology to tackle exactly the same problems of some of the big consulting firms, a McKinsey, a Bain, a BCG, Accenture, the kind of things they're tackling with their clients. We want to use the system to get a glimpse and make change visible and understand where the world is going. So that's where we're pushing from a consulting standpoint. At the same time, we've built some pretty incredible technology and the technology has primarily been used by us on behalf of Fortune 100 companies. We now want to take that technology and democratize it and turn it into a product that we can get out to more than just the Fortune 100 um, at a price point that makes sense so that other people can use that in order to make sense of what's happening in culture. And so those are kind of the two areas and both of those are designed to help us scale but also impact organizations outside of just marketing communications. That makes a lot of sense because I think I think what you guys are doing here could have some really broad implications beyond just, you know, just that typical kind of brand marketing. I, I think that's what you guys are doing here is really cool. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you for taking the time and coming in to yeah. Sparks and Honey and visiting. And Absolutely. And I'm, I'm excited about the uh, culture briefing. I've been looking forward to that for a couple of weeks now. So thank you for your time, Terry, and yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll talk soon. And thanks, everybody, for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode. Masters of Data is brought to you by SumoLogic. SumoLogic is a cloud-native machine data analytics platform delivering real-time continuous intelligence as a service to build, run, and secure modern applications. SumoLogic empowers the people who power modern business. For more information, go to sumologic.com. For more on Masters of Data, 
go to mastersofdata.com and subscribe and spread the word by rating us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.